Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, everyone. How's it going? We have to get more excited than this. Are you ready? We're recording a podcast tonight, so you all need to be uh, behaving as though you are having the greatest night of your lives. Okay? Uh, So thank you so much for joining us tonight for the Rattling Wall Issue 5 at Skylight Books. Uh, I am Michelle Frankie. I'm the founding editor of the Rattling Wall and executive director of Penn Center USA, which is a literary arts and human rights nonprofit here in Los Angeles. We have invited six contributors here to read for you, so please join me in welcoming them with a big applause. And because we have six readers, we're going to jump right in, and then I'll do some announcements in between the bios tonight. So first up, Susan Berman's work has appeared in Ziziva. She's won a James Kirkwood Literary Prize and received a special mention in the Pushcart Prize 2013. Please welcome Susan. Hi, everybody. I'm going to be reading from my story called Devo. Okay. Let me see if I can work this. Dave stood in an empty bedroom in his father's house and yelled, Yo! just to hear his voice boomerang off the walls. His older sister, Deb, would be pulling up soon, and he wanted to take a last moment alone, to say goodbye to the gray stucco box that sat slightly off its foundation on a parched cul-de-sac in Van Nuys. Goodbye to his childhood bedroom, where he and Deb used to lay in their separate darknesses and talk every night through a, y- through a vent in the floor. Don't worry, Deb used to say, I'll always protect you. What a sweet time that was, cut short by the projectile vomit of her teenage years from which she never recovered. Dave ran his finger over Dick Eater, gouged by 17-year-old Deb into his door 30 years before. A couple of girls walked by the window laughing, and Dave remembered Deb's sleepovers, her friends in their baby doll nighties throwing pillows at each other. There was the cute one with the crooked tooth and the tomboy voice, the one who came into his room that time and bent over to pick something up, exposing the buds of her burgeoning tits. Dave was seized with a sudden desire to beat off. And why not? A little blob of DNA indelibly marking the hardwood, ensuring that the house would never shift its loyalty to the new owners. (laughs) Short sale, lucky bastards. In a sealed envelope that said, to be opened upon my death, his father had written, well, kids, I guess by now you've realized that I was immature with money. (laughs) Do what you can, Davo. You're the man, so I've made you executor. Sorry to be a posthumous pain in the ass. You're the man, his father had written. Christ, he missed him. Dave lay down on the floor. He pulled his shorts and underwear to his knees and felt the dust-scented air tickle his skin. Damn, that's nice, he whispered, and kicked them off entirely, peeling off his Iron Maiden t-shirt as well. He imagined Deb's friends laughing in the other room, and here came the one with the crooked tooth bending over, just like he remembered, the pink feathery top of her nightie hanging down. Dave replayed the scene over and over until he got it just right. In the final version, the girl caught him looking and smiled. Then she proceeded to... Something vibrated, startling him. He twisted into a fetal position. Light beamed from the pocket of his shorts. Deb, sell. Hey, he said. What's the matter? You sound like you've been running. 
<laughs> no, uh, just, you know, cleaning up a little. <laughs> well, I'm stuck in traffic. The 405's a mess, but I'll be there as soon as I can. Did you bring the hoe, the spade, whatever it's called? Shovel. But why don't you get started? I don't want this to turn into an all-nighter. I'll call back with a revised ETA. Dave heard a car honk and his sister scream, Where the fuck do you expect me to go, asshole? Followed by silence. <laughs> Dave repositioned himself onto his back. He attempted to pick up where he'd left off, but the call had killed his momentum. He pulled on his shorts and wrapped his t-shirt around his balding head. He grabbed the shovel and the six-pack he'd put in the fridge and went out to the rise of sun-baked sun dirt near the pool. Kids on the other side of the wall were splashing and yelling, Give it to me! I don't have to, asshole! The rules say you don't have to when the ball's still... A man came out and yelled, You have five seconds to stop fighting, you got that? But dad... Dad. Just a dad on an ordinary day, dealing with his kids like it was the most natural thing in the world. Dave choked up. Why did he let Sandy leave with their son? Fathers had rights in California. A mom couldn't take a kid over the state line without the dad's permission. And Dave was no slacker. Not that Al and Ed's auto sound was the gleaming pinnacle, but it was something until he got back on his feet. His roadie gig was in limbo until Monkeyhead decided to get off their asses and get back to work. All those years of touring, all that effort put into building a fan base just to let petty infighting get in the way. And now, here he was. Come at this final hour to dig up his mother's box of ashes, buried by his father in a little impromptu ceremony ten years ago, interred along with a deck of cards and a pack of cigarettes. The thing she loved the most, kids, Dad had said, as he poured a bottle of Pinot Grigio over the mound of dirt. <laughs> Dave's groin buzzed. He reached into his pocket and grabbed the phone. A crane, a fucking crane fell off a truck and is blocking all the lanes. I can't believe this. People are sitting on top of their cars. Anyway, here's what I'm thinking. Why don't you go to Home Depot and pick up a couple of Mexicans from the parking lot? I don't want strangers. This whole thing is kind of personal. Dave, they're moving in tomorrow. Okay, I'll grab some guys on my way over, whatever, I don't give a shit. I'll call you when I... A siren blared and the line went dead. Dave put all his weight on the shovel and pushed into the dirt. Make it deep, Davo, his father had said when they'd originally dug the hole. God only knows, we don't want some cat to dig her up and batter around the yard. <laughs> Deb had been against the whole idea. People don't bury ashes, she'd said one day while standing in the kitchen eating the cheese off a slice of pizza. After all, if we're going to end up putting her under the ground anyway, what was that whole Neptune Society hoopla all about? The whole scattering the ashes over the ocean thing? She's afraid of the water, Dad had said. <laughs> Dad, listen to yourself. She's afraid of the water? Let's break this down. She's afraid of the water, but not of suffocating underground for, well, for the sake of an argument, let's just say for all eternity. She's afraid of the water, but not of being burned up in a brick oven and then scooped into a $300 decorative box. I went to the Neptune Society. They have a whole list of options. Chartered planes, family boat rides, all criminally expensive, but still, they make it really easy to... It was the closest David had ever seen his father come to hitting someone. Show some respect, his father had hissed, holding the box in a protective way as if he were covering its ears. Dave dug with his hands, throwing out little piles of dark, worm aerated earth. He felt resistance, something flat, the top of the box. He dug around its perimeters with a stick, prying it up from the bottom. Hey, Mom, he said to the partially decomposed box. Wow. The metal lid had rusted, and mixed with underground moisture, the box appeared to be bleeding. 
In his mother's final days, she had glared at everybody through a milky glaucoma haze, while Dave's dad held a glass of wine to her mouth, from which she sucked desperately through a straw. I'm a responsible person, Mom, David said as his mother, flying on morphine, took a break from talking to her dead brother. I try to do everything right. Monkey Head is big, Mom. I work with Monkey Head, and I'm responsible for everything. Hello, Thomas. Honey, this is Dave, your son. Thomas is, you know, said Dave's dad. He's been dead for 20 years, Mom, screamed Deb because her mother was almost deaf. And then, as per the instructions in a pamphlet given to her by the hospice nurse, Mom, listen to me. Are you listening? Okay, because this is very important. Let go. You can just <laughs> let go, Mom. We're all going to be fine. We just want you to... To which Dave's mother uttered her last words. Wait, it's... it's wait and then rolled her eyes as if someone had said something so obvious it didn't warrant a response. Her breathing stopped, followed by stunned silence. After a few seconds, Deb flung herself under the bed while Dad buried his face into his wife's neck, choking. Fucking great, Dave thought bitterly. Deb would be impossible now, telling everybody that she had told their mother to let go, and then bingo, a beautiful death, <laughs> heroically orchestrated, the final act of a daughter's love. On the other hand, if he had told his mother to let go, she would have said something like, oh, so you're God now? So you think you're God? And just to spite him, she would have kept on living. <laughs> Dave wondered if he was going insane. Your mother just died, he thought to himself, and this is what you're thinking about. Look over there, your father is crying. His wife of 40 years just died. Go to him, be a man. Dave walked over to his father, accidentally on purpose, slamming into Deb's foot as he passed. Thanks. Great start. Thank you, Susan. Julianne Ortali is co-editor, along with Samantha Dunn, of the anthology Women on the Edge, writing from Los Angeles. Her stories have appeared in Alaska Quarterly, Salma Gundy, and the Malahat Review. We are so lucky to have her here tonight, all the way from Bainbridge Island, Washington. Tongue twister. Please welcome Julianne. Hi. Thanks for coming out, um, and especially to uh, my friends that I get to read with tonight. It's a I wouldn't miss it for the world, and to you for taking this story. Um, this is uh, called The Blackberry Wars, and it's from a little collection I just finished up called Music for Incurables. Why are you hiding back here, I ask? touching the bottle of Balmore on our nightstand. Wes always held his liquor, the only thing he had in common with my father other than me. I found comfort in it. Lure you here alone, I reckon, he grins. You reckon? You're not just sick and tired of being sick and tired? Lately, he holds his scotch like a gun cocked in his mouth. We're about to fix that. Midnight in the big low-slung house and his farewell party's not anywhere close to over. Our whole family gathered on the ranch. Wes loves a party, but never was much of a rancher. I ran things after my father left it to me, and now our sons Buck and Joe run it. I find him lying in bed, the sheet pulled up to his chin and the blanket, too, despite the storm's muggy heat. 
On his nightstand, the angel of history, a tome five inches thick and weighty as a judge. Thanks for the party, sweet cheeks, he says, trying for his usual soft growl, but unable to disguise the weakness. The party thrives at the other end of the house. Buck and Joe and their wives, their uncles and cousins, our closest friends, everyone with guitars and harmonicas and tambourines. Their voices, the beautiful and the warbly, weave together and apart, singing out hymns and honky-tonk, bluegrass and blues. It's what we do, what we've done in this family on nights like this all our lives. Familiar, raging sweetness, yet different tonight. Tomorrow we check him into the hospital, second time this year, liver failing and he's drinking again. He hums the tune, the blue light of the muted TV spooky in the room the way he likes it. I join in their singing as it rolls right down the hallways to us, harmonizing, standing over our bed, my arms stretched out like a cross. Wes joins in, full. His voice cuts like a shovel, ironic, rich, buried alive. He's left the patio doors flung wide despite the lightning, rain bullets the hard ground. You know that lightning's bound to strike you dead right here. You leave those doors open and the TV on like that, I tell him. Had to, Val. Had to. The owl, he says. Out there again, perching on that open door, looking out across the field toward the blackberries. Ever since the big madrona got struck and we took it down, it likes that lofted shelter. Keep these doors shut when it's stormy, Wes. What's left of the party gets loud. He pulls a pillow over his forehead, so I tap across the room again in my party dress, and he lets out a quiet wolf whistle. Shut the bedroom door against the noise and light leaking down the hallway. As that muffles, the rain pounds potted trees and patio stones harder. Third time, he says, it had something. I check the patio, then shut the French doors tight. Nothing on the ground but water. In its talons, he said, a headless dove. Are you hallucinating? I was about to close the door. It was downright spooky, Val, staring at me with that dove, head severed, perfectly clean. How about let's put the scotch down, I say. Something dark near the door handles, rivulets along the white painted wood, one touch, and even in this light, I know it's blood. In one hand, his cigarette glows, in the other, ice in a cut crystal tumbler makes the sound of small bells. He takes a sip, swallows quietly, says, told you. When he touches the remote by accident, the TV blares, but he mutes it, wanting only the bluish light. I lie down next to him in the bed, and my feet dangle off the edge in red, caked, in red heels caked with mud from dancing on the lawn before the storm forced us in. He lifts his head, takes a drag from his cigarette. He pushes my skirt higher with his cigarette hand, touches the garter belt. It still feels awkward, but I know he likes it. He sings along with the boys a husky whisper. He shakes and the bed shakes. This doesn't stop now, ever. 
Light enough from the TV and the porch lantern, I regard his green-eyed son of Hungarian's face, blocky and handsome, grooved by want and beckoning, leaning closer, secrets hiding there too. Can you see me now, I ask? Sure, he says, but doesn't look dead on. He tries to rush the ashtray on his chest like he's always done, but before long, it shimmies to the left and falls right off. Skirt hitched to my hips, he touches my head, black and silver streaked hair that, no matter how I pin it, falls down. Water plinks on the roof. Beside him in the muggy heat, sweat crawls near my lips and temples, but he's shivering again. I stub my cigarette in the fallen ashtray, reach across him, set it on the nightstand, an excuse to lay on him, though I'm careful about it. Pressing up against his side, resting only my arm on the sheet between his skin and mine. His breath, an alarming sweet scent. Lately, the smell of sugar makes my heart physically ache. I know you think you're already dead, I say, but hold me. Outside, rain. On the bedside table, the bottle of Balmore. He'd started back sneaking vodka, but now that he's caught and got no time left, he's back to scotch and drinking it mean. He reaches for his glass, drinks deep. I take the tumbler from him, have a sip, a peaty musk, the taste of a thousand love-drunk nights we spent falling into each other's arms. Remove the bottle from the nightstand to the floor like that's enough. Trace the shape of his profile, still handsome, his strong nose, his lips, his face and not his face, these eyes and cheeks bloated with jaundice. Mercy, he says, and I know what he means. The glass of scotch in my hand, the bottle on the floor, poison, Wes. He hides his eyes with the pillow so just his nose and lips show the only gateways left to me now. Please, sweet cheeks, he says. It ain't time to nail me up just yet. Thank you, Julianne. David Ulan is the author of the novella Labyrinth, The Lost Art of Reading, Why Books Matter in a Distracted Time, and Writing Los Angeles, a Literary Anthology, which won a California Book Award. He is the book critic of the Los Angeles Times. Please welcome David Ulan. Thanks. That was great. You guys are great. This is really, like, this is great. Okay, so I'm going to bring down, I'm going to bring the quality level way down. <clears throat> I'm going to read some poetry. I was thinking earlier, it's been a long time since I've read poetry um, in front of anybody except myself. Um, I'm going to, there are three poems in the issue of The Rattling Wall, which are three poems of a quartet. So I'm actually going to read the whole quartet, um, the three poems that are in the issue and then the fourth poem that wasn't. Um, it's, it's a suite of poems that I, um, it, it became um, the four elements. I didn't start out that way. These poems were written over a period of years. So uh, water, fire, earth, and air. The first poem is called Pause. All night rain, an atmospheric condition spattering like birdshot at my window, rattling the metal gutters in the alley by my bed. And now in the morning, it's still coming. Front garden flooded, sky dark and hooded, porch light a bleary blur, 
6.15 a.m. I put up coffee, put off going for the paper, sit in dark and melancholy still. The day starts with a caesura, and I'm grateful for the quiet, although I know this flood will carry me away. This poem is called The Fire This Time. The pain is back, or no, not pain, but pressure, a slow push from abdomen to lungs, more a fullness than a crush. My father-in-law died like this, a tumor baby-sized like a rough gray stone birthing itself out of his worried guts. He was only three years older than I am when he was diagnosed. And now I wonder, how did he feel at first? Was a tight as a tightness or a fist? Some days my chest goes flush with fire as if someone has lit a match behind my heart. Is that what happened to him also, or did it creep up slowly, taking shape, gathering critical mass until his belly grew distended and it was impossible to ignore any more that he was being eaten from the inside, that the burning in his entrails was the flame by which he would be consumed? This is the poem not from the issue. It's called Vertigo. In San Francisco this morning, the air shaft outside my hotel window grays as if a fog has settled in. Red brick wall, facade of windows, angle of the street in the near distance, six stories below, a city that still feels like home to me, except that I am alone in a small room tidy as a ship's cabin, unfamiliar and familiar, Picasso nude print on the wall, not unlike the one I had in college when I met my friend who died last weekend, my friend who is not my friend any longer, is not breathing, is not dreaming, is not with her children, with her desolated husband, is not aware or caring that I did not visit when she was in the hospital, in a room not unlike, I imagine, this one, in a city where she does not live anymore. What we have is the ground beneath our feet, Gary Snyder cautioned in a documentary I just saw, but my friend is dead, and I did not say goodbye. Now I stare through the window like Jimmy Stewart in a Hitchcock film, wondering how I find the ground beneath my feet when all I see is blurred. And this one is called Above the Fray. 30,000 feet above the Rockies, clouds like the expression of a dozen nuclear explosions running north to south, a line of demarcation, as if we are flying across the front lines of the final war. Thanks. Thanks, David. Such a treat to have you reading poems tonight. It's a good deal. Both of our Davids are reading poems tonight. This is good. Um, before we move on, I want to say that none of this goodness uh, happens without Narrow Books, the Rattling Walls publisher, and also support from Penn Center USA. So I'd like to give a big round of applause. Mark and Justin are in the house tonight from Narrow Books. And Stacy is in the house tonight from Penn Center USA. She brought the wine, which means she's probably the most important person in the room. So many thanks to Stacy too. You can uh, visit and learn more about and suppo- uh, support both of these organizations online. Narrow is at narrowbooks.com and Penn is at pennusa.org. 
Okay. Cecil Castellucci is the author of Tin Star, Boy Proof, The Plain Jane's First Day on Earth, The Year of the Beast, and the Eisner-nominated Odd Duck. She is the YA editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books and Children's Correspondence Coordinator for the Rumpus. Please welcome Cecil. Do this carefully. Um, I'm going to read from the actual Rattling Wall, issue number five. <laughs> um, and I just want to give a big uh, shout out to Christina Calentis. Um, she did the artwork, and I just love the um, the art that she did in here. And um, it's a real treat to get to read uh, at an adult reading. So thanks. <laughs> so my story is called Sister Self. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Sometimes she sings to me. They are the weaker parts of me, her songs. They recall things that I cannot remember or never knew. I try to access what she knows about her own history, mine now, but no clear images ever come. She can only share the feelings and the songs. I imagine it, that when the humans came, they assumed the planet was empty they were tired from their long voyage, and they were glad to shed the shackles of the metal that had surrounded them for so long. Metal like me, that they rejected and despised. Here they would live without it, going back to what they considered the days of old, mythical times that they sang about, mythical times that seemed simpler and kinder. I imagine that they had seen no signs of intelligent life from above, no cities, no ruins. The scans showed vegetation, ores, and metals. They landed with authority and secure in the knowledge that they would be alone. They ran in the green fields. They swam in the blue waters. They dug and planted in the dark dirt. The world was theirs. So they must have been surprised when they saw the metal creatures living in cities that looked nothing like cities they remembered from the data they had carried with them or would think to craft themselves. To the humans, we must have seemed like fish swimming in metal oceans or bugs living in walls or worms that burrowed deep into soil that longed to be cultivated by human hands. To the humans, we were just things to be exterminated. Where did these terrible metal bugs come from? The humans must have asked as they advanced theories about the metal life forms. Machines abandoned by previous interstellar visitors. Leftovers from a long dead and unseen civilization. Unlikely evolution based on a principle that their thinkers could not imagine. I can only pretend to know what came next. I can only deduce the past from my present. If we are to make a home, we must rid ourselves of these pests, the humans likely said. And they set about building their houses with no idea of the intelligence that scuttled beneath them. It must have taken them a while to realize that these metal creatures had a will to survive, that they had families, that they had souls. I know the other side of the story. It's my own history. I can recall it with a simple data search. It's the shared painful memory of a people. At first, the metal life forms ignored the humans. After all, the other organic things never bothered them in the slightest. The birds in the sky took no issue with them. The small, furry wood animals only cared about the nuts that they buried for winter. The large aquatic creatures stayed in the oceans, not caring to come to the land. But after the first assault came, the metal life forms felt differently about it. War was waged. They evolved to better defend themselves, grew bigger, attacked precisely 
and after centuries of fighting, each of the life forms, human and metal, had dedicated itself to life on the planet without the other kind. I have walked on this planet, and I know one thing. This world was big enough for sharing. Worlds usually are. But the time for peace had passed, and the two life forms were enemies, and there was no space for them to coexist. There was a hate that lived in a place so deep in the humans and the metal that it caused a willful refusal of reality to take root. The metal hated flesh. The flesh hated metal. They had always been at war. They always would be. Even before I was born, the sun rose and set. The seasons ebbed and flowed. Trees grew from saplings to large old things, but war waged on. Battle after battle took place. Scarred from the fighting, the world was blood-soaked and filled with metal shards. Soon the world was not a nice place to live, yet the humans and the metal fought, each convinced that the other would fail, and one day one of them would win. On the day I was born, the battle was the same as all the others, full of fire and things ripped apart, horrible sounds emitted from the combatants as they fell, curses and epiphanies, regrets and revelations. So many died that day. And when it was done, and both parties had retreated and moved on to the next hill to be taken, the human medic came out to see if there was anyone to save, and the metal repair bot came out to see what it could salvage. The human medic ran from body to body, checking for a pulse and closing dead eyes, and the metal repair bot scuttled from robot to robot, assessing fused motherboards and fried memory cores. They ignored each other as they worked. Neither side had ever found a survivor, usually leaving the fields dejected and hopeless. The only ones who ever lived were those humans or metal life forms who retreated and retrenched. But then there was a noise. First the human heard it, then the repair bot, and they moved from opposite sides of the battlefield to the sound, and there on the ground, entwined, were a human and a bot fused together by the heat. Help me, I said. Help me, my sister cried. Medic and repair bot did what they had been trained or programmed to do. They went to work saving my life. They snipped flesh and they mended wire. They fused bone and metal. They used electricity to jumpstart hearts and circuits. They did something that had never been done before in all the years of war. They worked together. One held skin and metal together while the other sewed and melded. They solved impossible problems creatively. They learned new methods of healing from each other. For weeks, the two stayed by me, solving the problems of keeping me alive, no matter what it took. Thanks. Thank you, Cecil. Rita Williams is the author of If the Creek Don't Rise. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, O, The Oprah Magazine, Los Angeles Review of Books, and other places. She is currently writing a novel. Please welcome Rita. My God, what a privilege to be here with you guys. I, I just am so amazed how much talent there is in this room um, and I go back uh, so many years with a lot of people here it's, it, this is what heaven would be like I think um, I'm writing a, a book about a trucker named Greg and um, he um, is in uh, Galveston, Texas um, he's um, enduring heat heat 
and humidity precisely like we're experiencing tonight. Oh, by the way, it's heroic of you guys to come out in it. I know that. Um, so anyway, this is called Alligator Road. <coughs> the dog woke me, hurling herself against the wall of the empty trucking container we were squatting in. She'd knocked over the water jug again. I'd been dreaming I was in a box canyon back in the Mojave, being chased by a lasso of hornets I could hear but not see. It took me a minute to place myself in the port here of Galveston. I crawled up like a drunk, hoping to save my jacket from the stream running along the ridged floor and caught a splinter under my thumbnail. That woke me the fuck up. In the strip of light under the roll-down, which I'd propped open with a brick, I could see the dog's hackles rippling along her spine, her teeth bared in the sprockety beams of the yellow yard lights. Patsy Klein, hush, I said, unsnapping my dad's knife from its sheath. I slipped outside. Nothing I could see should have spooked her this bad. This container and the tin lined up after it all seemed to be sweating, condensation trailing down the sidings, air wet enough to drink. That hurricane boiling out in the gulf had us both fuck all jumpy. I climbed the ladder to the roof, 4.30 in the morning. The lot stretched for miles, but the only thing this far back was a jumble of discards, like this old punctured container I'd been in for nearly a month. The swinging yard beam surveyed eddies of churning fog. Far out beyond the end-curved barbed wire fence, Galveston dozed. Its cheery street lights part of another galaxy that the trucker merely serviced. Along the frontage road, a tiny four-wheeler with a loose muffler skidded to the freeway on-ramp, brakes shrieking for fluid, rattling speakers, blaring fall on your knees. Almost Christmas again. I stretched and took a whiz. The lot where the port, the rails, and the trucks all converged was cooking already. Tractor trailers streamed in taking advantage of the light traffic. The idling rigs angled to the front seemed restless with their windshields like dark eyes. Polished chrome snouts, Smoke stacks rising on either side like horns. Mostly Peterbilts this morning. A couple of Macs. Probably ten mil in hardware right there. I knew my competition this morning. The other lumpers were already trotting from dock to container, pushing hand trucks of palleted freight. I would have been there too by now, but Rocco down by the front gate had tipped me off about somebody needing a drive to the left side of the country. Every day I'd been slipping the rock, a 20, to keep his yap shut about me crashing back here, but he'd sing to anybody who'd give him a $21 bill. You know what I mean. I hadn't wrangled a rig since that jacked-up heist three months back, but the burns on my hands kept busting open. When I jerked something wrong, time to consider a different line of work. Some hobo-looking guy gimped along a row of empty containers. 
He stopped to rest up against a pile of tires, yanked out a bandana, honked his nose, then pulled off his yellow cap and mopped his forehead. Then, as if he felt me studying him, his head swiveled up. I stepped out to where he could see me good. Hey! He had a grizzled white beard that gleamed like sprouting steel. So, youngster, my name's Bud, he said, struggling to breathe. Rocco claims you got a Class C in hazmat papers. I got to make it to Fontana in 24. You interested? I didn't exactly fancy, fancy being pinned up with old, this old coot for a thousand miles. But if he could locate me here, so could Chesterine's crew and their battery clamp. I needed to get far, far away from Galveston, and Fontana was nearly home. I'm current, I said, backing down the ladder. I raised the door for the dog. When she sidled up to sniff his ankles, he grinned, and some younger, freer soul peeked through like the sun from behind a cloud. Something about him felt familiar. Patsy Klein wagged her strawberry blonde tail. He pushed his cap back and squinted up at me. You mind giving me a gander at them licenses? I handed him both. Craig Hardy, you kin to Sam and Edsel? Distant relative, I replied. He let that one lay where Jesus flying it, and I commenced collecting my gear. What's the load? Oh, you know, one thing and another. I dropped my pack. Don't get cute, mister. Hazmat? What are we dealing with here? His gaze flitted away. Oh, a little myriadic. <laughs> that set me back. Somehow this old clown had gotten roped into servicing dope chefs. At least now I'd know what steps to avoid. Once we rounded the back of the warehouse, the sound rose up in a wave. In the far distance, thunder rumbled across the night sky like a rifle crack. Stinging fumes pinned me ba my ears back like with a hundred prime diesels. Drivers swarmed around their rigs, finalizing their pre-trip. Which one's yours, I asked, maneuvering upwind of Bud, who reeked like a bar rag. Right there, he said, down at the end of the line, but I'd already seen which one it was. It had to be retreads on the front. Oil puddled under the tractor was being expelled through the blow-by, which meant the rings were shot. And that mud-streaked windshield didn't just mean worn-out wipers. It announced to the Department of Transportation Bulls a driver who was not careful. The only upside was that Chesterine would never expect me to hot, be hot-dogging this piece of shit. Break. I guided the semi up the ramp to the interstate. To my surprise, the rig, the rig handled smoothly in higher gears. I knew this pulverized pavement of the I-10 so well, I could have mapped every single wallow and rut, soft shoulder and blind. Almost six, but the night wasn't ready to relinquish its inky hold on the sky. It seemed a pale lamp had been lit in the east, and the water on both sides of the bridge was lightly gilded. Then we cleared the hill, and the scope and majesty of its ships in the harbor came into view. An aircraft carrier lurked near the horizon, gray as the steel sea itself, waiting to be tugged to port. Its tall metal mass seemed to puncture the night sky, and F. 
sixteens like titanium hornets perched along the oddly angled deck. A fleet of tugs worried a massive container ship into port, nudging it sideways along the dock. Cranes four stories tall glided out on rails above its deck, ready to pluck up containers for tractor trailers idling at the ready. Then, as they will do, a herd of four-wheelers braked for no apparent reason right in front of me. The gears had warmed up, enough not to seize, but it was very close. Cars were treacherous in the early morning when drivers either poked along or assumed they owned the road and could zip around anything. I was trying to tuck the rig to the right so nothing could lurk in my blind side when a yellow vet skimmed along the right shoulder and cut across four lanes, narrowly missing my front fender. When it skated back across, it got bud-rankled, shit-ass, he said, sliding the log book off the dash and unfolding a grimy pair of glasses. Let's talk about the trip, I said. Where you want to fuel up? Let's talk about, he said. You drive to Fontana? I ride to Fontana. I would have discussed way stations and the route if somebody was handling my $150,000 rig, but then a rational man would have never handed me the keys to begin with, now would he? Thanks so much, Rita. Our last reader tonight is David Francis. David is an award-winning author. His novels include The Great Inland Sea and Stray Dog Winter. He recently sold his new novel to Counterpoint Press. Yes. It's going to be released in fall 2016. Please welcome David Francis. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks for all you do for Penn and for creating this wonderful journal. Um, And thank you all for coming out. It's a treat to see so many familiar faces. Um, So I'm... um I'm the David with the good hair, but not the great hair. Um, And it's a... um, And... um, And I only wear white after Labor Day. Uh, I I have... um, a poem to read, and I really don't read read poetry. I haven't written a poem since I was a kid, so it's kind of fun to be doing that. Um, I wrote the poem because I was asked to do something for a thing called Australian Loves, Love Poems, I think it was called. And um, I wrote a poem, but I forgot to look at the parameters, and you're only allowed 30 lines, and I wrote about 90. So um, they liked the poem and sent it back, and then I showed it to Michelle, and she said she wanted it, and I said, sure. So um, here we are. Um, I also read it to my therapist, and... Um, <laughs> She said, oh, Jesus, another five years. So um, (laughs) the poem is called The God of Reversals. Uh, It should be called Oh, Brother. It's, um, although I have an ostensibly male voice, it's uh, told by uh, a, a sister to her brother, to her ailing brother. So here we go. The shine has fallen from your star, my brother. Your eyes are blank as toast. From the depths of our dead mother's chair, lawyer, businessman, mercurial sphinx, tentacled with tubes. Who is the god of reversals anyway? Me, reluctant trustee, called in from the suburbs. Power of attorney etched on my sleeve. 
Don't drool, my sweet. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.